a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, the founder of Future Women, a club to connect, learn and lead. In this series, we bring you some of the most thought-provoking speakers from our live events. How men and women manage is a hot topic. The general manager of Uber Eats is Jodie Oster, a former emergency doctor. Here she explains how she painstakingly drove cultural change after a global sexual harassment crisis just after she joined the popular food delivery platform. Here's Jodie. Managing and understanding women. It's a seemingly straightforward topic. I've spent hours and hours really thinking about what this means to me and why I've struggled to express it. I'm not an expert on the topic, so today I'm going to speak to you from my personal experience and reflections. Ultimately, I believe that the lessons I've learned from responding to the workplace experiences of women have helped me to better understand and manage my whole team. Recognising anyone's experience of being excluded or disadvantaged, whether through gender, race, sexuality, or more subtly through personality or style, has challenged me to work for inclusivity as a core goal. It feels good, and it's actually good for business. First, a short introduction so you know who you're dealing with for the next 20 minutes. I don't and never have had a career or life plan. I like to believe that great work is often recognised with new opportunity and that if you say yes to every opportunity presented within reason, that you'll have a great adventure. I don't have balance. My work energises and inspires me and so I spend a lot of time doing it. I love my partner and my kids, but I'm 100% sure that I don't want to spend more time on childcare or household management. I don't believe in inbox zero. At the time of writing, I had 44,444 unread emails in my Uber inbox, true story, and 28,743 unread in my personal Gmail account. And I generally don't miss anything important. I can recognise what's urgent. I scan three pages back at the end of every day and the rest is there for browsing later or never. I'm not someone who invests in networking. I do believe in spending time with people whose company I enjoy. And I also believe in being kind to and learning from absolutely everyone I encounter, especially at work. Now, a brief word about my experience as a female leader. It's somewhat of a joke amongst my peers that I'm the pin-up girl for diversity. I'm a gay, female, Jewish parent over 40. I do often get asked about my experience as a woman at work, particularly as a female leader in tech. And honestly, it's been overwhelmingly positive. My gender or sexuality hasn't been a standout feature of my story. I've had a fairly smooth run where I've worked hard, delivered great results and developed an effective leadership approach. And I've been consistently rewarded for that. I've spent some time thinking about the foundational factors that have given me the confidence to believe in myself and take some unconventional risks. There are four, four main factors that I thought of. First, my self-confidence really came from my family's support and encouragement. I was told from an early age that I could do anything, Jewish parents, um, and that financial independence will empower me to blaze my own trail. 
Second, I studied medicine and worked as a doctor for more than a decade. That has given me perspective on how fortunate I am and what a bad day really means. Because of my years in emergency medicine, I became really good at triage and working under pressure. I practiced hypothesis-driven problem solving, where you start with an answer and then you collect the most important data to support the hypothesis because each piece of data that you collect means physically examining a patient or exposing them to radiation or sticking them with a needle. You never collect a piece of data that won't change the decision you're making. Third, I was able to take big risks repeatedly because I had great fallbacks, professionally, socially, and financially. Having a medical degree is a powerful fallback. I was able to work lucrative locum shifts while finishing my MBA. I was able to try radically different jobs in management consulting and in the startup world because I knew that if they didn't work out, I could go back to practicing medicine. And even though they thought I was a little crazy, my friends and family cheered me on at every step. And finally, I've worked with some fabulous people, women and men, who look after each other and really have each other's backs. I've also worked in teams where that's not true, so I increasingly prioritise it when I'm looking at new roles. Many are surprised to hear that the current Uber leadership team in Australia has five women and three men. We regularly message each other to ask how everyone is doing, and it makes a huge difference to my experience at work. But I understand that this has not been everyone's experience. It's important as leaders that we acknowledge that some individuals don't have self-confidence or the safety net to take risks. Some people do deliver great results and are consistently passed over for opportunities. A McKinsey report last year wrote that women in the US were 24% less likely to attain their first promotion than their male peers, even though they requested promotions at similar rates. So three weeks after I joined Uber, Susan Fowler published a blog that described her experience as a female engineer at Uber. She claimed that she was sexually harassed and propositioned by her manager and then ignored when her concerns were escalated and that sexism was rife within the organisation with dwindling numbers of women in the engineering org compared to the rest of the company. I immediately turned my attention three weeks into the job to what I could do as a leader to drive cultural change at Uber. It didn't matter that this wasn't anything like my story. It was my responsibility to participate in an important period of introspection, listening and change. So in those early days of 2017, I did three things. I stood up, I listened and I spoke up. While I had spent a lot of time avoiding labels, it became immediately important that I did label myself as a female leader, as a gay woman, as a parent, so that I stood out as an example of what was possible. I made space to listen and particularly to listen for and respect the possibility that my experience did not necessarily reflect the experience of everyone else. I encouraged listening sessions across the region, an uncomfortable activity for leaders who like to talk and give confidence that we have all the answers. I also spoke up. I named the elephants in the room 
to encourage people to talk about their own experiences, people who had felt excluded because of their gender, sexuality or style, and then white men who were petrified to do anything for fear they might offend someone. Team members who had been proud of Uber, who suddenly felt really ashamed to look at their family and friends in the eye because they felt implicated by association. I sat in the discomfort and asked others to sit through it too, without judgment and without switching to solution mode. Once the initial story had passed, I jumped on board to wholeheartedly support the company efforts to tackle diversity and inclusion at scale. Here are some of the actions that were taken at Uber. But first, a few comments. I don't think any of these actions in themselves are groundbreaking or complicated. The most important thing is to just get started and keep going. I also think it's important to call out that diversity and inclusion initiatives benefit everyone in the company, not just women and underrepresented groups. Also note that these initiatives require commitment and participation from the whole organisation, particularly leadership. Definitely not just HR and recruiting. I'm sharing these actions in the hope that they feel possible and accessible for other organisations and leaders who don't know where to start. So first, we committed to transparency. We now publish an annual diversity and inclusion report, sharing demographic information about our workforce and our commitment to increase representation of women and underrepresented groups. We measured and improved gender and race representation in promotions. Something as simple as calculating the percentage of eligible men and women at all levels versus the percentage nominated at all levels is a powerful way to check for both structural flaws and personal bias. Our standard promotion nomination process requires us to write a case for each nominee going up for promotion. I asked all of my directs to also write a case for those who were eligible but not nominated because it's an equally important conversation. In the US, a DNI scorecard was created for senior leadership with longitudinal metrics to ensure we make progress on hiring, retention and promotion. Then we began diversity and inclusion training and engagement at scale. Our DNI team trained 4,000 people on why diversity matters over several months. This was our first global diversity program designed to stress the importance of cultivating and keeping diversity of experience, background and thought on our teams. It gave us a common language when discussing diversity. And we then rolled out Culture Forward, which was a more experiential diversity and inclusion training, starting all the way at the top with the executive leadership team and other top leaders. We made this training available to people managers and so far a thousand people have been through it. Culture Forward Driving Inclusion at Uber is now available online for all employees, which in a um, multinational across many geographies is a fast way to help people access the training. Training in and of itself obviously doesn't fix DNI problems, but it does start important conversations. It's incredibly gratifying to see our teams call out moments, and not just the women calling out moments, when they see a non-inclusive action and insist it's changed, whether that's a proper process for an internal candidate looking for a role change or a social event that's repeatedly scheduled at a family-unfriendly time. But the lesson that st stuck with me most from the DNI training I went through was this. Diversity is about inviting everyone to the party. 
but inclusion is about making them all feel comfortable enough to dance, and that's much harder. We also looked carefully at the candidate and employee experience. Recruiting worked with an external partner to review and rewrite more than 1,500 job descriptions to have more inclusive language. In engineering specifically, more than 1,000 new interviewers have been trained with DNI in mind. HR oversaw the development of job competencies that are free of bias. An equal and expanded parental leave policy, like Deloitte, was implemented for all parents regardless of gender or caregiver status. Our compensation team completed an analysis of comp across our workforce and made changes to ensure aggregate race and gender pay equity across Uber. Next, we've invested heavily in employee resource groups. We continue to expand and invest in more than 12 ERGs across the globe. Today, more than a third of Uber employees in a really big organisation participate in at least one ERG. I'm obviously part of many. Last week, the Uber Equal chapter, Uber's Community for Socioeconomic Inclusion, was launched in Australia and New Zealand. A team member I've worked with stood up and shared her story of financial hardship and how important it is for us to make it possible for people from all backgrounds to succeed at work. This was a type of inclusion I'd never really thought about, and it was the presence of the ERG network that had given her the courage to speak up. It's not sufficient to find talent from all walks of life. Once they arrive at Uber, we need to support our new hires and ensure they feel a sense of belonging, that they do feel comfortable enough to dance. I personally have made the sponsorship of emerging female leaders a, a commitment for 2019. So what does this mean? For all the female Uber Eats team members at a certain level, I ensure I'm available to them as their sounding board and as their champion when they need it. This is a scheduled commitment, 30 minutes per person every quarter. It's a lot of time. I believe that if I know just a little bit about what each woman aspires to be and do, I can accelerate useful connections across the organisation and remove some of the barriers to making that aspiration possible. I've already been able to recommend several people for roles that I happen to hear about in conversation. And most of all, I'm actually able to influence the confidence of these emerging female leaders, which it turns out matters just as much as competence. So have we made progress? At Uber, I feel like we absolutely have, but this is a never ending journey of improvement and a journey that extends well beyond Uber. Bo Young Lee, our global head of diversity and inclusion says that creating a diverse and inclusive workplace doesn't happen overnight. We need to invest for both the short and long term and change has to happen at both a personal and at an institutional level. In late 2017, we created the Diversity Advisory Council. The council is comprised of both Uber employee, employees and six industry leaders, all of whom offer their perspectives and guidance on both high-level high level strategy and specific changes that we can implement so that we hold ourselves to account. And we get powerful advice from inside and outside the company. The most noticeable change at Uber and in tech over the past year is that diversity and inclusion are front of mind. People are talking about this. They are better understood as topics, referenced in meetings and decision forums, and widely accepted as a better way to run a business. But across the board, the progress really does feel too slow. 
Since 2015, the first year of McKinsey's Women in the Workplace study, they write that corporate America has made almost no progress in improving women's representation. It still surprises me that we're talking about firsts for women in the workplace. Gladys Berejiklian was the first woman to be elected Premier of New South Wales. In 2018, for the first time in Australian corporate history, female appointments to ASX 200 boards exceeded male appointments. And 2019 will likely be the first time in history where we will hit 30% of women on ASX 200 boards. Not 50%, 30%. Jacinta Ardern was the first woman to be a Prime Minister and give birth. It's just too slow. So what are the next sets of challenges and opportunities for women's full engagement in the workplace? There's a great article in Harvard Business Review from November last year that's called How Women Manage the Gendered Norms of Leadership. It talks about four paradoxes that exist for female leaders who have to navigate the tension of being expected to be warm and nice with the expectation of also being tough and competent. While the article is about how to manage the paradox, I actually found it to be a good description of the type of leadership I think we need to engage a diverse workplace right now. Being demanding yet caring, asserting one's competence and admitting one's vulnerability, meeting our own needs and goals as well as others. For the warm and nice, I think it's time for us to embrace and celebrate a new type of leadership that is vulnerable, authentic and inclusive. In practice, this means honest and vulnerable storytelling from leaders and cultivating psychological safety. While I know how important it is for me to show a calm and optimistic face to my team, I also believe in sharing that I've had a hard day or that parenting and working full time is really rough. If it looks like we've got everything under control, it can feel so out of reach for those who look up to us. One of the stories that has stuck with me was told by Gail Kelly, a formidable financial services leader and a mother of four. She talked about frantically trying to juggle the school drop-off while taking an important work call, only to find that she'd forgotten to drop off one of her kids as she pulled into the driveway. If our teams are fearful of criticism, of failure, of losing their jobs, the right information just doesn't get surfaced. It's also an awful way to spend your time as a human. Feeling unsafe triggers reactions that actually make people feel physically sick. On a practical level, it means changing the way we ask questions. When was the last time you asked someone on your team or someone asked you, how are you feeling about that? And then for the tough and competent, being warm and nice does not have to come at the expense of great business results. In practice, this does mean inviting women to talk about their commercial experience, not just their experience as a woman at work. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to speak to this audience today, but I'm also aware that my opportunities to speak about gender outnumber the invitations to speak about the business I run about five to one. Diversity and inclusion itself has to be treated as seriously as any other commercial business priority. It should be backed by data, clear measures of success, accountability, and robust processes to reduce bias. It means scorecards, accountability forums, formal training and structure in business processes. Imagine if we all insisted on the same rigor and governance we ask from our teams on financial performance to be applied to DNI goals. Managing and understanding women is just one path 
to managing and understanding people. We all want to feel safe, supported and encouraged at work. We all want to be invited to that big party and we all want to feel like we're excited to get up and dance. Thank you. And remember, that was from one of our live events and you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. 